Hello and welcome to tonight's episode of The Historian's Cut. In 1996, tonight's film kicked off a series of British films set in working class communities in the north of England as they struggled to come to term with the decline of heavy industry. Unlike some of the kitchen sink dramas of the 1950s and 60s, these combined earthy subject matter with comedy, romance and an eye on the transatlantic market. The Four Monty prompted the chart-topping re-release of Hot Chocolate's You Sexy Thing. Billy Elliot swept the board at the BAFTAs and gained three Oscar nominations and a spin-off West End Sensation. All three would have been good candidates to answer tonight's question. But this tale of a brass band beating the odds to perform at the Albert Hall set against the backdrop of the closure of one of the largest pits in Britain is the most beloved, at least by the three podcasters and tonight's special guest and that's a good enough reason as any for choosing Brast Off to answer the question what can Brast Off tell us about deindustrialization and working class communities with me to answer this question are modern historian Morris Brody hello cinema historian Dr Sam Manning hello and tonight's special guest Dr Pete Hodson oral historian and postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College Dublin and specialist in deindustrialization. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. We're going to start by asking Sam just to tell us a bit about the background to the film and also some information about its reception. Do you want to go first, Sam? Sure, Phil. I mean, as you said, the film was released in the UK in 1996. To, I would say, critical acclaim, most people were positive about the film on its release. So, for instance, I found reviews talking yeah, about how much they liked the film because of its warmth. And there's lots of praise for the performance of Pete Possilway in particular. Barry Norman on Film 96 said, Mark Herman and a splendid cast of women, a cracking good movie that is consistently warm, funny, deeply serious and very touching. And even the slightly more highbrow sight and sound uh, said that the film was a tribute to the defiance of a community under siege as an indictment of those who betrayed it, as a gritty melancholic comedy, and most of all as a celebration of the big brass band, brass offerings loud and clear. It didn't quite match up to those other films that you mentioned, uh, firstly in terms of the box office. The total box office was under $3 million in comparison to $258 million for Monty. That is quite a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite quite a stark difference. Um, yeah, it d- definitely didn't break out in the the international market to the to the same well, to anywhere near the the same degree. It was nominated for three BAFTAs. Uh, didn't win anyway. It lost out to best original screenplay and outstanding British film to Mugley Secrets and Lies, and to best original music to The English Patient. I think. Even though you um, said that the others are obviously far more successful and had have spin-offs in terms of you know West End West End musicals, I think the the success of Brastoff can be measured in part by the way that it has endured with those who you know like it. For instance, uh, there was a stage adaptation and there was a film event at the Royal Albert Hall um, last year, which is where the final scene of the of the film takes place. So yeah, less commercially successful than something like Billy Elliot or The Full Monty, but I think well-loved by those who uh, who do like the film. Pete, I'm going to come to you next. As I said at the beginning of the episode, we're asking the question, what can Brastoff tell us about deindustrialization and working class communities? 
But I think before we get into the meat of that question, maybe could you give us a bit of background on, I suppose, coal mining in general? Why was it so important in industrialization up until that point? And why would we be talking about a decline in the in the coal mining industry around the time that the film is set? Yeah, so, I mean, coal was the backbone of industrial Britain since uh, the early 1800s, really. You'd have seen dozens of pits across the coal fields from Lanarkshire in Scotland down to sort of Kent and Somerset in the south of England. And it fueled factories, it fueled steam trains, you know, that sort of thing. So it really was the, the power behind Britain's industrial might and the 19th century in particular, but also into the 20th century too, before it was supplanted by other fuel sources. So coal in Britain is essential to working class history too. Of course, it was one of the most dominant trades until the 1920s for working class men in these pit areas of uh, particularly Northern England, looking at like New Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, Durham, parts of Scotland, South Wales. So it was essential. It employed millions of people at one point. And after the war, down to about sort of half a million people employed in the industry. And it was nationalised in 1947 by the uh, Attlee government. But towards the, the 1980s, particularly as, as a result of the, the Thatcher government's policies, there was a shift towards alternative fuel sources, particularly oil and gas, because most coal by this point was destined for power stations and the national grid was changing its policies towards different fuel sources. So there was a drop-off in demand for coal but rather than negotiating this process in a, in a structured manner, there was, um, as the film you know, indicates, a quite a systematic process to unravel the industry, which was took apart by its seams, really, quite brutally in the aftermath of the 84-5 strike, which was the big kind of watershed year in terms of coal history in recent decades. And by the 1990s, where, you know, of course, the film is situated in, I suppose, that 92 to 6 period, the industry had virtually collapsed. Pre-strike in 84, there was 200 and I think 11 pits nationwide. And by the early 1990s, after this uh, quite catastrophic closure programme that was uh, spearheaded by the Thatcher government, you're left with about 50 pits concentrated in the, in the Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire coal fields. So it really was Custer's last stand. And the film, I think, illustrates this really well. The issues that individual workers were facing at this point, whether to accept redundancy and uncertain future prospects or, or fight for the survival of the industry. I think we'll go into more detail about the motivations that would have been driving those two factors perhaps later on in, in the episode. But just one question on, on what you've mentioned so far. We do want to focus on the period that the, the film is mainly about, so that kind of early 90s period. But there is a reference to the strikes in 84 in the film what would have been the significance of that moment for the characters in the film would you say it does seem to be quite an emotive topic and when they're discussing it among themselves in the film yeah it's um even today right up to the 2020s it's the, the major kind of cultural divide in the cornfields i did a lot of research in county durham for my phd and there's people that still cross the street to avoid people that were strike breakers and there's a lot of very deep animosity even to this day so the 84-5 strike was pivotal in terms of the future prospects of the coal industry and the characters in the film would have felt this quite keenly there's a scene in the canteen where the uh, the characters are discussing whether to take redundancy pay or to fight for the pit's continued uh, operation uh, there's a bit of a 
bit of bickering between where people stood in 1984, which was you know, 10 years previously in terms of the film's chronology. So these were very deeply felt feelings that linger to this to this day, really, in terms of both community cohesion and also economic prospects for the areas that were reflected by it. Okay. I'm going to take, I suppose, the, the first kind of main question, but Sam and Morris, you, you guys follow suit as well. There's a sentence in the in the film, I think it was one of the managers who said it. He says, coal is history. And in our pre-meeting, we were discussing this. I think that sentence might mean something different to a modern audience than it would to an audience in the 1990s. I suppose for us, we would think of coal as history in terms of climate change and trying to move away from fossil fuels. What would it have meant to the characters in the film? Yeah, still a very emotive subject, as you, as you picked up on. I mean, in recent years, I think even Boris Johnson tried to kind of rewrite the history of pit closures by saying it was a sort of a pro-green agenda on the part of the Tories. So you see in this very subtle rewriting of history in recent decades, but for the 1990s characters, I mean, Coal wasn't history, you know, the, the coal that was being extracted in, in Britain was simply replaced by imported coal from Colombia, Australia, Poland, other European nations. So there was a change in policy not to extract it domestically, but the coal was still powering most power stations across England and Scotland at this point. So in that economic sense, it had a very important role to play in the 1990s in Britain's kind of energy mix in terms of keeping the lights on so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a dirty fuel there's no there's no dispute in that fact but um the policy choices made by government to import it rather than extract it domestically had of course catastrophic consequences for people that were employed in the industry itself you mentioned that um the coal was still being imported i suppose maybe if we could just try to understand some of the reasons behind the domestic policies in terms of moving away from coal and, and, and the physical closing of, of the pits. What were the actual reasons why the government was trying to close the pits? It was simply a, a case of buy cheapest. And also the, the power stations were privatised in the 1990s. And eventually the National Coal Board, which was the, you know, the, the coal corporation owned by the state since 1947, was privatised too in 1994 or five. So... Yeah, the, the coal itself was still coming in from other countries. But there was a political edge to this too, because you know, it was a, an aspiration of the, the Thatcher government, as laid down in the Riddle Report of 1978, to, to break the coal unions, National Union of Mine Workers, NUM to be specific, because they were a kind of bastion of, of working class power in Britain that the Tories didn't particularly like or want to have on the political scene. Linked to the Labour Party, in terms of providing Labour's funds, quite important too, in that sense, for uh, election campaigns. So, um, yeah, there was a political edge to it and also an economic edge. And also there was a, what was in terms of a dash for gas in the 1990s too. So coal was supplanted by gas-fired power stations. And we're kind of reaping the consequences of that in the last couple of years because we're now overly dependent on imported gas, which has gone through the roof and there's still millions of tons of coal beneath the feet that's untouched so in that sense it was quite short-sighted in my my opinion because mm, with the um the main female character played by tara fitzgerald she maintains in her role as a surveyor that the pit is still profitable 
but it's it's a, it's a decision that's already been made regardless of what is in her report. Yeah. It's a political decision. You'd, you'd have found that across the coal fields in the 1990s, regardless of how profitable individual pits were, the closure was already decided in Whitehall. And regardless of what would have happened in terms of the miners deciding to strike or not accept voluntary redundancy, you would have faced a scenario where the pit would have shut anyway. And there was a case I looked at in my PhD in Wearmouth Colliery in northeast England, and it had proven reserves of 60 years worth of good quality coal that was destined for power stations. And uh, it was shut regardless. And it was just, well, people use this, the, the term uh, industrial genocide, what some people do in the, in the field anyway. And I think in this sense, it's probably applicable because um, it was just so short-sighted, I think, on the part of the government to, to shut down these productive, profitable units and, uh, and cast thousands of men, and they were all men at this point, onto the scrap heap. I think it is worth dwelling on, on that question just because I, I think it's not a particularly complex plot, but I think it is something that perhaps viewers that don't bring any knowledge of coal mining and the economic policies at the time to the film. Why would a, a profitable pit close? Is it what you're saying that they were state run at the time? So it doesn't actually matter how profitable it was for the owners or the management. It was within the government's gift, basically, just to shut a coal mine down purely for its own policy reasons. Is that essentially what you're saying, Pete? That's it in a nutshell, yeah. I think if the pits were in private hands, and some were privatised in 1995 after the sell-off, but yeah, productive units were shut down across the United Kingdom. And even the last pit that shut in 2016 in Yorkshire was still supplying a neighbouring power station, still operating productively and profitably right to the end. But by this point, the policies have changed and alternative fuels have been sourced and uh, domestic coal mining in that sense had been forcibly made extinct for, as I said, I think quite short-sighted reasons. And that's not me being pro-coal in that sense either because it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, a dirty fuel, it's a fossil fuel. And as the move to net zero looms large, we can't be relying on these fuel sources. But there was a way of doing things that the British government deliberately chose not to. And if you look at the likes of Germany, this process was structured over 30 years to minimise dislocation, minimise unemployment and hardship as a consequence. Whereas the, uh, the governments of Margaret Thatcher and John Major simply pulled the plug and walked away. You mentioned hardship. and. I think clearly the biggest impact that the film focuses on is the kind of cultural impact of the closures of the pit. But there is one scene where you see the now former coal miners in a job centre, I think. And there is also the, I suppose, tragic, comedic subplot of one of the miners trying to make it as a clown. Mm. Before we move on to the cultural impact, what would have been the employment options for a former coal miner? very limited because if you think about you know where coal seams are located they're in quite remote areas with some exceptions like Sunderland being one they're not located in big cities and these towns like Grimley or Grimethorpe is the real name for the place were built for the sole purpose of providing housing for coal miners and the families so once you remove that purpose for the town's very existence 
there's going to be trouble, and and there was <laughs> there was trouble, this, and there was there were some efforts to steer new industries into these areas, particularly like Japanese electronics firms and car manufacturers, but the unemployment rates in the coal fields in the 1990s were excessive. There was a lot of long-term sickness as well, as a result of the industry's conditions, but also for the fact that people just couldn't get jobs. I think the the majority experience for ex-miners was um, a severe drop in income because mining was a well-paid job, let's not forget. It was a good, solid income for working-class families with lots of overtime benefits too. And alternatives, you saw a lot of taxi drivers, a lot of HGV drivers, a lot of retail workers, and they couldn't compete in terms of income levels and knock-on effects for family prosperity. It just simply wasn't possible. So yeah, the hardship was very real, and you see that illustrated in Stephen Tompkinson's character's wife. There's a scene in the shop where she asks for tick, and she's given a, a pound note by, um, is it Sue Johnston, to, to get her over the line for the week. And you, you'd have seen that happening across the coal fields. There's a, a lot, as a credit crunch, for want of a better word. People couldn't afford luxuries like they used to, like foreign holidays, uh, the car got sold, things like this, and it's that being too broad brush it was it had a, a catastrophic impact on a lot of families from which these areas and Grimethorpe included haven't really bounced back from 30 years on. I think it's yeah, important to talk about the kind of socio-economic impacts that the film is mainly about the cultural impact and culture in the film is represented by the brass band so I think we shouldn't delay talking about brass bands any longer. So, Pete, you're an expert in brass bands, is that correct? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate them, but I'm no expert in them. <laughs> Were they as synonymous with mining communities as it is made out in the film? What is the connection between brass band music and mining or working class culture more generally? Yeah, it's funny. It's roots in the, in the 19th century. I'm, I'm still not sure why brass instruments were chosen over the likes of flute or a violin but um i i think it's because brass instruments have a presence you can't walk down the street with a guitar and have the same effect and you know these these brass bands were very popular in i think the majority of pit communities from scotland to south wales there was a kind of community pride surrounding these bands and membership of them and you see that even today with the, the Durham Miners Gala, which you know I've attended on a few occasions, the band is kind of like the community's symbol in many senses. Um, they've got the banner, they've got the brass band, and you can't help to be moved by some of the music either. I know Danny Boy has played in the film. I've never heard that at the, the Miners Gala, but I think it's because it's the character's name is Danny, you know, Pete Postlesweight character. But you'd find that... Um, Traditionally, hymns were played by these brass bands because a lot of these communities had their roots in primitive Methodism, particularly in South Wales, parts of Yorkshire and uh, County Durham in, in particular. Whereas today, if you got the Durham Miners Gal, you'd, you'd hear Abba or you know Pharrell Williams' Happy. You know, so there's a real <laughs> mix of, uh, of of tunes being played. But um, yeah, you, you can't help to be moved by by brass instruments when they're they're played like they are by Grimley or Grimethorpe Colliery Band. It's uh, it's powerful stuff. And Pete, was there a competitive element to um, to brass bands, or is that just something that's used as a dramatic device in, in the film? Like, was it 
kind of linked to the pride of the community? You know, was having a successful brand, you know, indicative that you were a successful mining community? I think it probably was. Yeah, there was there was definitely national competitions probably died out in the nineteen nineties, to be honest, when all the pits or the majority of the pits succumbed to closure. But certainly there was um great pride in these bands. I know in the film there's there's two kind of fangirls that go along to the the contest at was it Halifax or something there in in the film. And you'd find that that had been utilised for big civic occasions too. Say if there was a new mayor in town or something, or even at funerals, you'd have had the brass band playing at the afterdo sort of thing. So they were very much integrated into the DNA of these pit communities as a big part of the social life. And I imagine membership was was quite competitive because of, you know brass instrument isn't it was quite difficult to play a long period of apprenticeship to get to a decent standard. So. Yeah, I imagine great pride was taken in entering competitions and seeing how far the local band would get. And you mentioned Grimethorpe being the real mining community, and I think the Grimethorpe band is what it's felt based on. And I think they're still going. Do you have any idea of if the choice was portrayed as it is in the film of once the pit goes, the band goes, or do you know if the bands tended to continue? Yeah. Yeah, I think Grimethorpe, because of the film itself, has managed to flourish and survive longer than perhaps many others. But certainly to take the example of, of County Durham, there's not enough bands to support the amount of banner groups that parade around the streets of Durham. So you have um, brass bands from Yorkshire or uh, Nottinghamshire, or there's a I saw a, a pipe band from Scotland once representing a, a Durham pit village because there's not enough brass bands to go around. And it's difficult to pinpoint exactly why some survived and some some didn't. I think it's probably down to individual personalities and the, the charisma of people like Pete Postlethwaite's character, essentially. I get the impression that brass bands were a kind of surrogate for the industry, whereby you could maintain these these links, socialisation, bonds, whatever you want to call them, despite the absence of the industry itself. So you could continue to meet with your, your peers, your friends, your colleagues, or ex-colleagues at this point, and uh, maintain this important community focal point and cultural resource. So that does, I suppose, contradict a little bit the message in the film, which is that pit closure equates to the band disbanding. So would you say that that's something that the film kind of got wrong, I suppose? Well, not got wrong, but it's it's purely a kind of a dramatic device in the film? or Yeah, I'd, I'd say... I haven't got any, any stats on it, Phil, but I'd say a fair few bands succumb to the inevitable when the pits close because, you know, people move on, people relocate for new employments and the bonds that held these people together, namely the, the pits and employment at the pits, were frayed and, and snapped. But there's you, you get some, I suppose, diehards that uh, wanted to maintain these connections and, and maintain what is for my money, an essential part of working class culture. And I recommend any of the listeners to go to the Durham Miners Gala and sample it for them themselves. It's uh, it's quite an experience to hear these instruments bouncing off terraced housing and people walking down the street having a good a good laugh and a dance. It's uh, yeah, very much part of working class culture, even in the sort of the post industrial context. I think they do a wonderful job of bringing you know, what are, by and large, quite impoverished communities together and a source of collective pride. Obviously, the, the music is one 
aspect of, of working class culture portrayed in the film. And another aspect which is, is not necessarily mutually exclusive is, is drinking and alcohol. Mm. There's quite a lot of uh, going to the pub and playing music and drinking as well at the same time. I'm wondering what your, your impressions of how the film portrayed that aspect of working class culture and if there's any other aspects that maybe are important that you'd like to mention. Yeah, in terms of the working men's club scenes, I can't really fault it because uh, I've sampled that myself because these institutes continue to exist in many cases and you know people would still gather for a drink and a chit-chat and a game of pool. So in that regard, I think it's quite an accurate portrayal of you know, working-class uh, social life. But uh, what was the second part of the question, Morris? Sorry. Uh, if, if there was any other aspects that you know from your, your research about mining communities that maybe were prevalent in the film or that deserve a mention? Yeah, I'd flag... I, I find the scene where the men are in the canteen voting on the on the pit closure decision quite emotive because it's if you dangled that amount of cash, and I've, I've come across cases of individual miners being offered as much as £35,000 in redundancy money, which in 1992-3 was a heck of a lot of money. So you face with that quandary on the one hand of accepting the end of your working career in the coal mine in exchange for a, a big whack of pay or maintaining it as an open operating unit. And that was a scene that I particularly like in the film where the, the, the closure vote happens and the union officials are shaking their heads in disgust at the men voting, was it, I don't know, two to three in favour of closing the pit in exchange for this money. And that, of course, was state-sponsored. You know, they wanted an easy way out, the government, so they, they stuffed their mouths with gold. And who can blame individual miners for taking that decision to take the pay and, and run? But there's a slogan in the strike that, you know, it's not it's not your job to sell. And I think that the film evokes that quite well too. So these weren't just jobs for individual people. They were inherited and passed along. And with the closure of the industry, these links stopped with immediate effect. And what was an important community economic resource was just gone at a stroke. And I think it's quite indicative that I think the biggest employer in Grimethorpe now is an ASOS warehouse, which kind of speaks to the post-industrial economic change that's happened in the last 20, 30 years, the move towards the gig economy, whatever you want to call it, which is you know, very often precarious jobs, ununionized and quite poor working conditions from what I've read in, in the media too. Uh, we might need to add a disclaimer in case ASOS's lawyers uh, come at us at the end of the episode. But um... <laughs> can't see me. I'm skinned. <laughs> so, as you painted, quite a positive picture of, of mining in terms of the the fact that it provided well paid jobs and, and a sense of community. I guess there was also downsides to that. I mean, you see that in the film through the impact on on Danny's health. Yeah. Do you think there was, there was a bit of a kind of love-hate relationship with the, the profession or, or maybe you can talk about some of the more negative aspects of it? Yeah, it's um, it's a hard one, this, because even miners themselves, you see this like tensions. I've interviewed you know, 30, 40 in the last few years uh, across the Durham coalfield and you see this tension you know, trying to straddle the, you know, the love for the job itself and the rewards that it reaped in terms of financial benefits and cultural benefits. But also the the negative side, as you alluded to, the prevalence of what's called pneumoconiosis and other COPD-related diseases that the inhalation of coal dust caused over the long term. So cancer rates in 
mining areas are through the roof, uh, were through the roof. I've changed in recent decades. You know, the life expectancy of miners was a lot lower than, than other occupations. So, yeah, I mean, Danny's character coughing up blood and coal dust was, was fairly indicative of what was happening to miners of, of his age and generation in the 1990s. So that despite enhanced health and safety procedures in the 1970s in particular, there was still an inherent risk to the job itself in terms of accident and injury, but also longer term effects regarding the likes of pneumoconiosis, which is well, to miners' lung, which is a disease that afflicts a lot of people later in life, causes shortness of breath and in some cases um, premature death. So yeah, you, you've got to offset the positives and negatives. It was a filthy job. Let's not beat about the bush. It was it was hard graft even after mechanisation. But I think if you if you ask most miners, was that a fair exchange for the life they had and the money they earned? They'd say they'd say yes. I suppose another negative would be that I think does come across to some extent in the film is the exclusion of of women from both the profession of mining and also a lot of the culture of being in a brass band. You mentioned at the beginning that there were no women miners. Would it have been at all possible for a woman to have got a job down the mine? No, it's an uh, act of parliament in 1842 banned all women and children down the, down the mines. And that's, I think, as far as I know, on the statute books even to this day. So there's plans to open a new coal mine in Whitehaven. You might have seen it in the news recently, a new coking coal mine. So whether women are allowed to work down there remains to be seen. And I repeal some Victorian legislation first, I don't know. But yeah, in terms of the the social life of mining communities, it was a very masculine space, there's no denying that. And there was very few opportunities for women to have paid employment outside of the home in these in these areas too. It was perhaps limited to kind of cleaning jobs, retail, or perhaps work at the pit itself in terms of canteen work, really. So in that regard, it was, yeah, I think perhaps there's a, a silver lining in pit closures for women because it kind of ended that over-dependence on one masculine industry, which was coal mining, perhaps given more of an opportunity for them to get involved in the labour market on more equal terms. I suppose another aspect where the topic of gender comes up is the role of women in the protests. Mm. Is that something that kind of came up in, in your research, Pete? Definitely, yeah. You're the first and seen this in the, the 84-5 strike. There was a movement called Women Against Pit Closures that took off very quickly after the strike was called in March 84. And they kind of took on a, a lead in the fundraising side of things and also provided community welfare facilities like bits of childcare, catering and stuff like that. But the interesting thing about that period, which the film is, is, is set in the early 1990s, is there was a a similar urge on the part of many miners to strike, but this this carrot of redundancy money precluded picketing because that was one of the conditions set by the government that you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't pick it and get your big lump sum at the end of end of the uh, closure process. So women would have took the main role on picket lines in this period. So I looked at a pit in the northeast called Vain Tempest, quite a romantic name. So. Uh, Women would have taken this active role of standing around the brazier with placards, shouting scabs at passing lorries. So uh, that's an interesting dimension, I suppose, to the research in this time. That the active striker role was was taken on board by women more so than the actual miners themselves because of the threat of losing this big lump sum by the government. You mentioned the profanity of the word scab <laughs> there, and I think it's it's something that comes up in the film 
quite a lot. I'm just sort of wondering about the um, application of the term because it seems to be quite broad in its in its use in the film. It's more than just someone who would cross the picket line. It's it's also used for Ewan McGregor's character who has a relationship with quote unquote management. It's also used by Stephen Tompkins' character about calling himself as Gav because he voted to take the redundancy money. Yeah. I suppose, what was the kind of cultural capital of, of, of the word scab and how, how was it used? Is it fair reflection of the, of the word in the film, do you think? Yeah, I, I found that a bit strange, actually, that, that Stephen Tompkins' character would refer to himself as scab for taking the, the money that was offered. I didn't come across that in, in my research the PhD, it was only used in terms of um, those that crossed the picket lines in 84-5. I know in, in Yorkshire there was a kind of grading of, of scabs <laughs> based on when you return to work. So those that went back to work before Christmas 84 were called super scabs. And the ones that went back to work in the, the final months of the strikes sort of between January and March 85 were just called play on old scabs. So there was a kind of hierarchy of scabbery, <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it. But, the, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a term that's, that's used across the Anglophone world, isn't it? And it's, it was used in the 1930s in Kentucky. I know that for a fact anyway. And it's you know, not a very pleasant term and it's still banded around even today with the RMT strikes and all the stuff that's going on, on these days. So it, it runs deep. And I mentioned at the start, there's these divides still exist in these communities. All these generations now fading, you know, it's they're in the 60s, 70s and 80s now, but these divides still run deep. And, and what you did in 1984 still kind of determines your level of social integration, your ability to, to walk into a shop um, unaccosted or walk into certain spaces like a pub or a working men's club. If you were on the wrong side in 84 or 5, you'd be given short shrift and probably ejected from the premises. It's, it's still it's still that deep. I've witnessed it myself in County Durham. Unless you've, you're kind of immersed in that culture, you can't quite understand the uh, the level of bitterness that exists, but it, uh, it still definitely, definitely does. There's an element of an air of defeat, probably amongst the miners in the, in the film mm. in the early 90s. In contrast to the 8485 strike, did it mark that much of a difference in terms of the ability that perhaps workers felt to win the strike? It seems like they're fairly resigned to their fate in the film by the 90s. Yeah, you see that illustrated best by the character of Phil, don't you? You know, his domestic struggles and also his um, mental health battles as well. I mean, that that scene where he's, um, he's hanging from the pit head winding gear is still quite shocking to watch and not seeing the film for about five years until a few days ago and it's still you know, that sharp intake of breath don't you but um yeah i mean the 1980s or that that strike in 84 5 was obviously lost by the num and uh, you'd have seen much more muscular management in the intervening 10 years and uh policies of forced closure so miners knew by this period of time that no matter how hard they'd fight or stand up, um, and despite the evidence that was supplied by surveyors like the character in the film, the the odds were stacked against them and the government would and could close pits at a whim, regardless of the evidence brought by the unions. So, yeah, the, the air of melancholy in the film, I think, is quite an accurate reflection of the, of the mood in the early 1990s that 
the outcome of the battle was predetermined, basically. Um, and no matter how what they did or what tactics they adopted, the writing was on the wall for the industry. So, Pete, I wonder if we can just try and sort of link that back to what we were talking about the, at the beginning in terms of Brastoff in relation to some of the other films that were released in the 90s, such as The, the Four Monty and, and Billy Elliot. I mean, Brastoff definitely isn't a subtle film, is it? You know, it kind of, it very clearly, you know, wears, wears its heart on its sleeve. I mean, do you think its anti-Thatcher sentiment can account for the fact why it was less popular than something like The Four Monty? Yeah, I, I noticed that weirdly it was it was depicted as a romantic comedy, wasn't it? In the states, this brassed off, which I don't quite understand, but uh, it certainly packs a punch politically. And uh, I think, regardless of your political persuasions, I think even Michael Heseltine, who was in charge of this process in the nineteen nineties, admitted that it was too hard and too fast. And um, so even Tories have kind of reappraised their actions in these years and seen it as too too catastrophic. But yeah, there's a kind of holy trinity of films, <laughs> which is you know Brastoff, Billy Elliot, and uh, and The Full Monty, and I think all three in their own way quite successfully portray this deep rupture in British society quite well. Um, you know, the end of heavy industry and the transition to new vistas. But as as all all three films indicate, these new vistas were often imaginary, fictitious, um, and in the minds of civil servants alone. But uh, for my money, anyway, I think Brastoff is the best portrayal of this process in the 1990s. Um, although they've all got the merits. I mean, Billy Elliot's fantastic too. Also set in a fictional pit village. And the, the full Monty too is, I suppose, more comedy value, but uh, sort of packs a punch in terms of its um, more subtle political message. Is there anything in particular that can account for these three being released in the same period? You mentioned the word rupture. Do you feel that there was a this feeling of a, a national wound and it was these kind of films that were being made and th- their popularity was part of, I suppose, um, a bit of soul-searching on behalf of the people at the time? Yeah, that's right, Phil. Um, the, the 1990s was the kind of the decade of transition, really. You saw the end of the economy that had been in, in existence since the 1850s based around coal, steel and heavy industry. And they all fell like dominoes very quickly in the 1980s for a variety of factors, not just because of Thatcher and neoliberalism. But um, yeah, there's there's a definite reason why these th- three films followed in quick succession, I think, because they all reflect a kind of national mood and a sense of transition and, and uncertainty and the, the passing of an important historical epoch, you know, which is the, the first industrial revolution, which kind of lingered on, I suppose, in these three films in the form of coal and steel. And there's an interesting. I, I like the it was Stephen Tompkinson's character. You know, he's walking out of one of his clown sessions, and he he says to the, the woman that he's getting the money off. Remember the dinosaurs, the dodos, and the miners. In that that sense, you know, they were already on borrowed time, even culturally in the 1990s. The sense that were ghosts of an industrial past, which was quite an interesting perspective. Pete, do you think one of the purposes of Brastoff is just kind of making people aware of what happened since the minor strike? At the end, you get a little capsule on the screen, which I can't remember exactly, but it says, you know, so and so many mines have closed, so many jobs have, have been lost. I mean, in people's perception at the time, was it that the minor strike had happened and the industry had died and they hadn't really thought about it? And was the film an attempt to bring it back into the public consciousness? 
I think it probably was, you know, because it did fade from the headlines after 85. You know, there was the, the process, unless you were directly affected by it or had family in the industry, was hidden away. And that was partly because of the geography of where these pits are located. They're not in inner cities or suburbs or major towns. They are in a geographical and sort of temporal sense cut off from the outside world. So I think it was it was probably an attempt to, on the part of the filmmaker to I don't know, a kind of rallying call to ensure that people don't forget about these places and despite the absence of the industry that, you know, there's still people living there, often in quite difficult economic circumstances. Grimethorpe is the real-life town, right? So um, was that a particular cause celebre? Were there any particular events associated with that pit closure which could have sparked the particular interest of the filmmakers or was it just picked because its name... Sounds a bit depressing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit gritty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I get the impression that they chose Grimethorpe because of the prominence of the band. And even in the 1990s, the band was quite famous. It had won national competitions and was, I suppose, quite prominent in certainly Coalfield community consciousness, but perhaps not national consciousness. And the film obviously created that space for the band you know, to play in the likes of the Albert Hall, which I think they have done subsequently. So yeah, the, I mean, Grimethorpe, I suppose... By virtue of its location geographically, was perhaps hard hit than neighbouring pits because it, it was it is cut off. You know, there's there's kind of one road in, one road out sort of thing. And there were many comparisons across the UK. The pit where Billy Elliot sets um, it's called Everington in the film, but it's actually called Easington. It uh, hugs the County Durham coast, and there's nothing around it apart from sea and fields. You know, so um, there were very easy to forget these places despite their importance to Britain's economy historically because they were quite often so isolated from urban areas, cities, towns and and centres of power, not just Whitehall but town councils too. I might be going back over previous points here, Pete, but I guess I think, well, I'll I'll say, I'll give my kind of speculation on why I think the four Monty and Billy Elliot were more successful and you can perhaps say to what extent you agree. I think they're much more optimistic films and probably like have a slightly more, I would say, conservative, politically conservative outlook. I mean, in the case of Billy Elliot, that's a film about a young boy kind of freeing himself from the shackles of the community and going on to find individual success. And in The Four Monty, you could say what Thatcher wanted has happened. These people have lost their jobs, but they've kind of discovered an entrepreneurial spirit to find a new profession, um, or by in the form of, of stripping. Um, whereas, <laughs> in, whereas, you know, Gustav, you know, none of those characters really, you know, find any, any redemption. You're even Gloria's character, who is upwardly mobile, she's able to leave the community. In the end, she kind of, she regrets that she comes back. She discovers the community again. You know, she she funds the band to go down to London and compete in the in the finals of the, the brass band competition. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't watch Brass off for a pick me up, do you? It's uh, quite a sober film. There are, you know, there are threads of humour within it, but you're right in that regard. It's um, I think the director wanted to get across the centrality of the political message above above all else, whereas perhaps um, the full Monty and Billy Elliot were pitched at more popular, feel-good audiences. That's my perception anyway. But I think of the three, Brastoff certainly is the most powerful in terms of its portrayals of these communities and the impact of deindustrialization more broadly. But that's me being a, 
an historian having a historian's cap on, I suppose. But I, I can appreciate the other, the other two as well. I mean, I think if anything, we've portrayed a very downbeat picture of the film. Like it is, in actual fact, very funny, and like a lot of its appeal is in its humour. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, even the scene with the, with the clowns on the on the head frame, you know, a man in a clown suit. You know, it's just there's there's, there's glimmers of a humour even in the, the darkest moments. Very, you know what I mean? Dark comedy, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, very dark comedy and the interactions between the characters in the shops and down the pub and stuff and. It is it is a decent film in that regard, but you wouldn't you wouldn't sit down on a Saturday night with a bag of popcorn and hope to have a, a really good laugh out of it. I don't think <laughs> that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just I kind of encourage people to kind of sample it for themselves. And I know I've brought up the Dora Miners Gala a couple of times now, but uh, sample mi- mining culture, you mean for themselves? Yeah, to to a degree, and also the brass band that accompanies it, the brass music, because it it is a powerful tool, and it is a real indication that despite the effects of industrial closure on on these communities, that there's still this nugget of community pride that people can rally around and and feel pride in their collective shared heritage in the coal industry. And the Miners' Gala itself is a a really important portrayal of this culture that's that's basically now extinct let's face it there's no deep coal mines left in britain and it is dead in that regard but the culture still kind of lingers on in the form of the music and in that sense i think the film was quite useful for putting a spotlight on brass bands and perhaps given certainly grime thought but but others the inspiration to to pick up the trumpet again and start walking down the street with a banner I actually think that's a really nice way to finish, Pete. A call to listeners to sample it for themselves. I think that's it. That's a good way to finish. So, Pete, thanks very much for joining us today. You've answered the question, what can Brastoff tell us about deindustrialization and working class communities? You've answered that question over the course of the episode. As a final takeaway for the listeners, could you boil that down to a 30-second answer for people to take away with them? Yeah, certainly. Obviously, you know, it's a... a dramatic license and all that but it's it's certainly if you want a, a kind of flavor of working class life in the 1990s and an understanding of the ripple effects of deindustrialization it's an excellent resource it's got moments of humor but also of, of real kind of human dignity and just to remember next time you turn the lights on that this field was very important to the national economy that's brilliant okay well pete hodson thank you very much for joining us today Morris and Sam, as always, it's been great to have you. And I hope you listeners that you can join us for another episode soon. See you later. Cheerio. Thanks now.